0: Listening to the Birth Bruja Podcast, a place to explore intersectional, liberational, and decolonial approaches to birth work, healing, and life. Join us each month as we explore everything from the personal to the political: birth justice to ancestral healing, interrupting systemic violence to practicing inclusive reproductive care. Here, my friends, our roots spread wide and deep. Today, we are gathered in a Wednesday across the country from each other, so far, but yet so close. And um, Rafael, you said something just now before we hit record that was so profound. I was wondering, friend, if you could share that blessing again, but share it for all of us that are listening.
1: Absolutely. Um, I was just speaking to giving thanks to your highest self and, and to your spirit and to our ancestors and all those who came before us, because this is a privilege that we get to tell a queer Black story, but just also all the trials and tribulations and the hard won victories that went into this political moment and this, and this particular opportunity to get to tell our stories. And so all of my ancestors, all of your ancestors, all of those who are listening in, thank you, thank you.
0: Thank you again for that. Um, Mm -hmm. I think sometimes via the interwebs, things can feel so easily consumable. You know, Mm -hmm. it can be just this one-way consumption and Your exact words I thought were so profound for today's conversation because it's important that all of us, whether we're in this conversation right now or whether we're just tuning in, listening, um, it's important for us to realize that even if we're seemingly alone in this moment Mm. right here, right now, this is still an incredible opportunity for connection and an incredible opportunity for us to remember all that's transpired in order mm-hmm. for us to be able to sit and listen and be present. So thank you for yep. that. Thank you. So folks, it's been a hot minute, a long and sweaty <laughs> hot minute since uh, the Birth Rucha podcast has been up and running. So for those of y'all who've been listening from a long time ago, thank you for staying tuned. For those who are um, meeting me in this platform for the first time, I just want to give a, a short intro. My name is Eric Guajardo-Johnson. My pronouns are she, they. I am a biracial, queer, birth worker of color who's based out of Metro Detroit area currently. Mm. It's this is occupied Anishinaabe land. So I'm a birth worker, I'm a rape crisis peer counselor, and I'm a cat with many hats, shall we just say, but One of them being uh, the host of the Birth Bruja platform, which is, yes, it's a podcast, but it's also an online platform for anyone and everyone that's interested in intersectional, liberational, decolonial approaches to birth work, healing, and life. So all that being said, um, in terms of more recent happenings, there's been a lot happening in the world. 2020, everything is happening at the same time, it feels. And therefore, as the Birth platform has grown and level up and been more and more collaborative, it's become increasingly important for myself and for the platform in general to be supporting and uplifting specifically Black and Indigenous birth workers at this time, and also specifically Black and Indigenous queer and trans birth workers at this time. So, so yeah, all that being said today, I have the profound privilege to be talking with an extraordinary human, Raphael, I'm going to ask you friends to introduce yourself in just a minute, but just to really put out there that we are going to be joining Raphael in their journey of being a midwife apprentice or student midwife for, you're committing 12 months, correct? Is that the agreement? <laughs> yep. Yep. Yes, 12 months. To start, we'll see. Yes. For the next 12 months, we are going to be bearing witness to all of the inspirations, the motivations, your success, the struggles, um, the logistics, um, especially since my move out to the Midwest, which is a pretty, not pretty, it's a highly segregated place Mm. where most slash almost all spaces are dominated by... um, (laughs) White, heterosexual, cisgendered Christian folk, now that I'm back out here again, it feels that much more important to bear witness to, again, a Black queer journey of becoming a midwife. Just because so many folks that aren't in, you know, coastal areas, for example, would never have met, for example, a Black midwife, let alone a queer Black midwife. Right. Um, Right. So... This is for everyone who feels alone, for everyone who Mm. doesn't see themselves reflected in the mainstream birth work of community in your area. And yeah, I'm just so honored to be here with you. All right, friends, so please Mm. introduce yourself for us. Hi.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I am Raphael and I'm also a cat with many hats. I am currently a student midwife and a full spectrum doula so that includes abortion doula birth uh, fertility postpartum bereavement all that childbirth educator placenta encapsulator like what else am i missing um i'm also a ritualist and a priestess facilitator sex educator family planning counselor nutritional counselor hypnotherapist (laughs) energy worker (laughs) I am Shaka Khan's every woman how about that every time you hear that song just think of me
0: from now on I definitely will so that makes total sense considering the wide depth and width that is birth work Mm -hmm. and reproductive justice work and wellness it makes sense Would you mind then sharing a little bit about how you came into this world of reproductive care and then also eventually what led you to become a student midwife?
1: Absolutely. Um, So I started off my life as a gay for pay. That's just affectionately deemed by um, a friend of mine named Maria Poblet, all love to her. So I started off doing work at like GSA Network so Gay-Straight Alliance Network. Um, my high school was like the third high school that had a GSA in the nation. So I started my life doing similar work, right? Like a lot of advocacy and a lot of activism when I was a teenager and in my early 20s. Um, I also worked at Lyric Lavender Youth Recreation Information Center, Hi-Fi Health Initiatives for Youth, like all these different dope places. Because I grew, I grew up in the Bay, so that's one of the like you know, the blessings is I grew up in San Jose and spent my adult life in San Francisco and Oakland. And so I've just been able to be connected to some really amazing organizations. And so I was doing lots of like really advocating for queer youth, LGBTQIA youth, and just making sure that, you know, we had all the things that we needed in order to actually thrive in this world. and. Literally one day, I just was like, I've been having dreams about women and babies. And I got my natal chart done. And she was like, it is not possible for you to have the number of babies that is coming up here. And I was like, I don't want to be an OB. And I thought midwives didn't exist. And I still cannot remember which one of my friends said it to me, but a friend of mine was like, well, have you thought about being a doula? And I had no idea what that was. And because it was 2007, I did what everybody else does. And I Googled that shit. <laughs> and got real lucky, real blessed that the first thing that popped up was the woman who ended up training me. So, Samsara Morgan was my mentor and my teacher. And I saw that she w- had a training going, and I was like, let me just dip in and see. You know, maybe this is for me. I don't know, but it sounds interesting. It sounds like it's up my alley. This sounds kind of dope. And I talked to her on the phone forever went to my first class and walked out with a client first class it was just like a fish to water and after that that was literally it like i i I just that's just what i was doing (laughs) The, the next three years my whole world was birth and i got to work mostly doing home births and birth center births i also worked up in the hospital I got to work with every kind of family, you know, like queer families, single parents, gender non conforming families, folks who were under the age of 25, people who were unhoused, millionaires. You know, like it's just, I got to see the gamut because it's the Bay. I was that's how say, the Bay that's, is.
0: That's straight up the Bay Area. That's, yeah.
1: yeah, it's just a straight up the Bay. So, Um, I got to work with all kinds of different families and people and birth workers. And at the time, there were a few other Black birth workers who were coming up through the ranks. So Rashad, who is a midwife, Black midwife down in Los Angeles, she was just starting her midwifery practice, like when I became a doula. Um, Asatu, who's a Black midwife out in um, Oakland, was like dead center in the middle of her practice. And um, so there was just, there was a whole bunch of us who got to come together and also support each other through like all the stuff that happens when you become a birth worker. Cause I, I was also shiny and new, I was so green. And though I had that background in doing queer youth work, birth work is a different animal, especially in the sense of like how patriarchy shows up, gets gets different and gets interesting but just also how i'm treated and what i can say it was it was just a it was a i had to learn a new language you know like i had to take these skills that i had used for a specific population and adjust it to another while also cuz you know mind you like again this is 2007 when i got started and i was like 26 years old so um You know, I was just like, that's about that age, too, when you're just starting to kind of try to figure out who you are for real, for real. And like, why are these your friends? And if this is the work that I want to do, why am I doing it? I was answering those questions at the time while also figuring myself out as a birth worker for the first time. Um, So it was a wild ride. That's how I got started Ah. (laughs) to become a doula.
0: Um, Did your journey into um, birth work, was that simultaneous with your journey into your spiritual practice or did those happen at different timelines?
1: Those happened on different timelines. So um, really my spiritual path came about as a way of survival. I've always had mental health challenges. I, I don't remember a time in my life where I wasn't dealing with some form of definitely anxiety, but also depression. And I also could feel things. I knew things were happening, but I grew up as a Southern Baptist. And some of the listeners, when I say that, are going to be like, "Ooh!" <laughs> like my mama is from Greenville, Alabama, baby. Like I got, I got raised country, traditional, like. Jesus is going to save you the blood of the lamb, you know? And so when I would mention those kinds of things, she was like, oh, there ain't nothing but the devil. You need to take care of that today. But also at the same time, you know, my mom was like, you know, I have premonitions and dreams and stuff like that. And so my spiritual journey and my mental health journey happened at the same time. Again, Bay Kid, my junior high had two therapists on site that you could see for free once a week. And they created a conflict mediation group and trained a whole bunch of us to be conflict mediators to help them with the load that showed up. That was my first introduction to like therapy, right? And and that kind of healing. And then when I got to be in my early 20s, when I first moved to San Francisco, I had already been looking at different kinds of religions anyway, but I kept running into people who were practicing African based traditions. And I was like, maybe this will help me get that extra layer that I feel like I'm missing. Like I finally have some therapy. I figured out where to get some body work. By that time I had stopped going to to church and was just like, what can I find that also honors the fact that I I didn't call it that at the time but that i was a witch and that i was a healer and that i was meant to be doing something else with my spirituality so that started first and i'm thankful because it gave me a really good grounding once i went into birth work um and even like as fucked up as um being southern baptist was i still had an amazing spiritual grounding from that and also um know people catch the spirit so going into possession states was normalized for me too Mm -hmm. so yeah
0: thank you that's actually a question that i've always wondered about simply because for me my spiritual practice has been crucial for the way i understand birth work and so Mm -hmm. i always wanted to ask you that question and so i thank you for that um Uh so yeah, and I also apologize. I feel like I may have slightly just you from the story about when did you first started to recognize that you were interested in being a midwife and not just a doula and all of the other skilled birth work stuff you do?
1: Yeah. And before I jump into that, because I know listeners are going to be able to hear the background noise, I just want to say where I am and give honor. I am in Oakland, California right now, the town where the players come to play 510 for life. Eh, eh. <laughs> I'm in East Oakland at that, which is, this is the land of the Ohlone people. So big love, big ups, and Dupuy to all the Ohlone people for this land. And in true, I live in a city form, life is happening. And this is the first time we've been able to go outside in like over a week because we had a heat wave. Ah. And then there was a lightning storm, dry lightning. And so we've been having fires out here in California for the last few years, really bad ones. So there was all this smoke. And so also, like, because it's COVID-19, we're also in a pandemic. Folks are taking the first opportunity to finally be outside and get some fresh air. So, and I'm one of them. (laughs) So I'm on my front porch. I love
0: this. Yes. I love that this (laughs) podcast is actually happening in real life. And we're not just in, like, isolated rooms surrounded by home. So, yeah.
1: Nah. Like, we are actually, and also, like, this is this is how the meta affects our every day, you know, like what's happening in the political world and what is happening with our environment is literally affecting how we are in communication <laughs> with each other right now. Yeah. So, so the switch to midwifery, when I think back on it now, I've always been a midwife. And the way that I got trained is traditionally how midwives get trained. Like I, basically sat up under a handful of black birth workers for three years and just learned my ass off and i learned like i went to class and stuff right like i did six weeks and i got my certification which most people when they become doulas it's four days i did six weeks and i had to do some book reports and a presentation it was like but also like the apprenticing part of like have someone to and talk to you on the phone when I was birth, and also attending births with these folks who obviously knew more than I did, and just absorbing, right? And because I got to do so many of my births outside of the hospital, I really got trained as a traditional home birth midwife. And I was always taught to look at things with that eye. So an example of that is my teacher really pressed me understanding and knowing medical language for birth. And with doulas, there's like a basic that you need to know, right? Like what an epidural is and stuff. But I like knew pelvic station and rotation of the baby and where their head is in relation and like what that does to the birth. That's really only a midwife's eye. So I've been practicing like that the entire time. And recently when I reopened my practice full time, I was like, okay, I need to draw back and actually act more like a doula because being a midwife is intense. It's intensive. Like that is a primary care practitioner. Folks don't understand like traditionally you saw your midwife womb to tomb. So I, I get my wellness visits done. All my pap smears have been done by a midwife for at least 15 years. And a lot of folks don't know that you can do that. And the same thing with fertility counseling and getting inseminations. And when you would start your menses, you would go to a midwife. When you started menopause, you would go to your midwife. And also when queer folks and gender conforming folks were trying to have babies, it was usually midwives who were the only ones who would try to help them get pregnant and deliver their baby safely. Uh, so we've always been on the front lines giving love to our people also there's not many of them left but there are tons of midwives who were doing abortions long before they were legal there are still a few left who can do abortions outside of a clinic or a hospital which is dope as hell (laughs) you know like to actually be loved through that process Um, right so yeah i got to have all of that and so when i drew back to be more of a doula and not be so in-depth and and not have so many prenatals and stuff like that, I was like frustrated as hell because I just was running up against white coat syndrome, right? Where like I'm giving suggestions and so is the doctor and they don't line up because traditional midwifery and Western medicine don't have the same intentions, I would say. Nor are they focused on necessarily the same outcome, right? And and even how to get there. So I just was like, I want to have more autonomy over my clients, but I also want my clients to be able to be more empowered to be in conversation with me. Like, that's one of the things that I like about the midwifery model of care is that I'm not doing something to you. Like, you and I are in a relationship together and we're trying to make a plan so that right. we can help you get through this moment healthy and sustainably you know i'm not trying to tell you what to do and none of this is going to work unless you're on board so i just was like between that and like my business is called cypress doula and healing services and for the last two years i have been getting calls regularly people asking me to be their midwife i just recently had a client she was having her second baby, her third baby, I'm sorry, but I was being her doula for the second time and she was just like, you know, psst, psst, could you just deliver my baby and we just say, we just say F it and just keep it I'm like, girl, I can't do that. You know, like, so I was like, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Let me just finally make this adjustment that I, I've been fighting for the longest.
0: I mean, if that's not the universe <laughs> telling you something, I don't know what is. If is if you needed any like more clear communication. Um, <laughs> so was it um, in terms of the timing of like jumping into training? Um, could mm-hmm. you speak a little more about that? Like, was that was it just more of like your own process of when you were ready? Or was it like some life logistics that were dictating when you were ready? Can you speak more about that, please?
1: Yeah. That is a big question with a big answer. So my life circumstances right now are I just got out of a six-year relationship with an emotionally abusive, masculine of center, cis female relationship. And the therapist I'm seeing is a Black, gender non-conforming, somewhat femme-presenting, queer person. And I bring those two things up because my therapist was really integral in me saying enough, right? And like, I just need to do what I need to do because if I'm going to be on this earth, I want to be here. I want to wake up every day ready to go. And if I have to spend so much time working, I need to be in love with what I'm doing. And the same thing in a relationship, I was just like, I need somebody that's gonna help me get to the next level and I feel like I'm going backwards or stagnating. And so that was a piece in me saying like, now is the time to dive into training. I had also over the years really watched and observed the midwives particularly queer midwives of color, black queer midwives, but you know, midwives across the board and like what it takes to become one, what it takes to, to stay one for a long time and what it takes to transition into other work or retire. And who was going to jail, who wasn't going to jail. I paid attention to who was a part of witch hunts and who wasn't, you know, like all those kinds of things. And like, what are the ramifications? Cause there's some real ramifications to choosing being a midwife, even if you choose to be a nurse midwife up in the hospital. Because there's three paths, right? So you got certified nurse midwife, licensed midwife, and a certified professional midwife. And then there's lay midwives. And basically all that means is like there's one that can work in the hospital and gets trained by the hospital. There's a set that's getting trained mostly outside of the hospital or all outside of the hospital and are still going through Western approved venues of, of being recognized as a midwife. And then you have folks who were like, I just know what I know. Cause my great, great grandmother was doing this. My grandma was doing this. My auntie was doing this and they taught me and I'm just doing this for my community. I didn't go to school. I just, I just know my shit. Right. Those folks. And there are a few states where midwifery is illegal and the number of those states has been shrinking. It was more like in the 70s and 80s when there was a reboot of traditional midwifery and home birth and things like that. That was one of the reasons why second wave feminists were really working hard to make that change because they were like, what do you mean midwifery is illegal? Like, this is stupid. So there's way fewer states. I think we're down to less than 10, uh, maybe even less than five. And everywhere else, you either need to be a certified professional midwife, a licensed midwife, or a nurse midwife in order to practice medicine legally and not uh, risk going to prison. And there was lots of work, and I'm trying to figure out how far down the rabbit hole to go into this, but I think what I can say for now is, like all struggles, particularly in the feminist movement, Black, indigenous, particularly Latina, and folks of color versus white women has been deep. And when folks of color were just able to practice midwifery, the way that we had always been practicing midwifery, you basically just were either chosen by a community member or you were always at births with your Auntie or your grandma or you know, one of those things, but you learned by doing and by apprenticing for years and years and years. And then you practiced in your community. And then when Western medicine, the patriarchy, white men got a hold of it, it turned into this like, you have to go through this, this, this hoop in order for us to recognize you. And there had also been an entire campaign run against midwifery at the turn of the 20th century so (laughs) yeah all of that all of that is happening too in the background
0: (laughs) yeah thank you first off for the first time ever for this podcast i for sure am practicing muting myself because especially with you friend (laughs) i make so many noises of like (laughs) affirmation when you speak that i'm just gonna mute myself to like save the listeners from all this background noise (laughs) <laughs> but um, I hope and I, I suspect that we'll be continuing to weave in some of the historical yes. context because yes. this shit is alive today, yeah. right? Like that legacy yep. is alive in a myriad of ways. Yep. And yep. that's one of the things that I think is so important about decolonizing birth work is moving mm-hmm. from this intellectual place to a heart and belly base, right? Like yep. knowing that history is not just this, again, this like, Intellectual um, memory that 's done' yep. with, right it 's still living and breathing um, yep. so thank you for for so eloquently and concisely <laughs> putting <laughs> a lot of nuance in like a little nugget for us
1: <laughs> man i 'm trying i 'm trying because it 's like you can't you can 't talk about this part without talking about this part you know right. what i'm saying so like my right. decision to um, the, the path that i 'm choosing to even become a midwife is rooted in shit that happened over a hundred years ago. <laughs> yep. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So, um, and, and the struggle between particularly second wave, but also third and fourth wave white feminists and us black indigenous POC folk is still happening. And, um. It's it's Mortal Kombat out here, for real. Like, it gets real. One of these days, maybe I'll talk a little bit about what happened with Miss Ina May Gaskin. Oh, please do. That's one of my favorites. That was one of the best dr- Facebook drags. I was like, I was <laughs> so glad I was there for that. I literally went and got popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my god. Anyway, yeah. but I digress. So yeah. um, So because of that, so I thought about, like, the likelihood of me going to prison i thought about which path would allow me to practice the way that resonates the most with me and i wanted to make sure that i walked away competent you know because not everybody who's training people across the board but midwives aren't exempt from this not everybody's getting good training and i don't this is somebody's life in my hands i'm not trying to like half-ass my training. I want to walk out of there and be like, I know Kung Fu. You know what I'm saying? On some matrix. <laughs> like, that's how I want to feel. So I've been researching like where are all the places that can make that happen and what all the things. And what I've decided on is that I'm going to be a licensed midwife and a certified professional midwife. And so what that means is that I'm going to go through the path that the midwives who are in power at this time recognize as a way to become a midwife. So that's the certified professional midwife. It's other midwives who give you the nod like, yes, you, you've had enough training. The people who work with you say that you know what you're doing, you pass this test, go ahead out into the world. And then the licensed piece is a similar path. It's just at the end, in California, you take what's called the NARM, which is an eight hour test, eight hours in one day, and cost $1,000. And then the state of California says, okay, the other midwife said that you're competent. We think you're competent to Go out there and do your thing. And as long as you stay within these parameters, which is the midwifery scope of practice, we won't send you to jail.
0: Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you mind if I ask, um, cause this is something that when I first began as a birth worker, this blew my mind, this part. Could you speak to what your life logistically looks like to be a student midwife like how many hours ish are you making money do they pay for your books or do you have to pay
1: for your books all of that uh uh, so i am becoming a doctor by all intents and purposes i am becoming a doctor of reproductive medicine i'm going to be a specialist i am becoming a traditional holistic healer. So just the same way that people who got their training as traditional Chinese medicine practitioners, OBs, I got years of training to go. And most of that is gonna have to be free labor. So uh, a student midwife legally is not allowed to get paid to be a midwife. Um, We can get paid to be an assistant, we can be paid to be a doula, we can get paid to basically be like a pseudo student helper person thing, but it gets real tricky around like me taking on a client as a student midwife and getting compensated for that is basically something I can't do. So a lot of student midwives either rely on their partners who bring in the primary income or they continue on as doulas or become like placenta encapsulates and things like that. Or just like do things on the sly, you know what I'm saying? And like have these like fuzzy lines. And so what I'm choosing to do, and some student midwives have done this too, is I'm doing a bunch of fundraising. Because I know that I'm really not going to be able to work. And so I've decided, like, I just want to be a student. <laughs> like, I'm okay doing some doula work, but I don't want that to be my bread and butter. So I have been calling in on my grants and scholarships. And because now they exist. When I first became a birth worker, there were no scholarships for midwifery school at all. And now there's a few, and there's some specifically for students of color. So I've been going after those, and then I'm also gonna be doing a Patreon and like GoFundMe kinds of things so folks can continue to donate because I need money not only for like my everyday expenses, but I do pay for my own books. The tuition for the school that I chose is over $19,000. My equipment, that i have to get is probably going to be well over a couple thousand dollars and i live in, in the bay area of california so just for me to function basically by myself because i don't have a partner and i don't have children or a dog <laughs> is going to be about five thousand dollars a month so really to be comfortable i need about 10 because also the preceptors like the people that i'm going to be, be apprenticing under they deserve to get paid too you know like right. Teaching someone while you're doing it is work. I have done it. So um, I'm wanting to make sure that they get some money because I want most of my training to come from Black folks. I'm going to have to travel because right now there's, that I know of, there are less than 10 Black midwives in the state of California. Mm. And I'm blessed because being in the Bay Area, uh, many of them are here. But also because there's only a few of them, everybody you know all the black student midwives are trying to get on each one of those folks tails. so that also means I'm gonna need to travel to get some of my training in other places down in Los Angeles in Atlanta for sure many of the places below the Mason Dixon because that's where black midwifery has its its deepest roots so so that's the financial part and then it's a lifestyle Right. You know, I'm basically joining a religion, you know? So <laughs> being on call, once my clients are 36 weeks, they can call me at any time and be like, I'm having this baby, let's ride, and I gotta go. And I don't know if I'm gonna be there for an hour or if I'm gonna be there for three days. We don't know. We, we can make some sort of predictions, but we don't know. And so my life has to be set up that way to be able to just drop things, which takes away a lot of like, traditional side jobs too. But it fucks with my life, you know, like just even trying to date and have friends and make sure that I eat well and that I stay safe and all that kind of stuff, like all of it gets affected. Because as a student midwife, in order to get your license, you have to hit a certain amount of numbers. I think if I'm right, the next time we talk, I want to make sure that I have the paper that has the exact numbers the things that I have to hit but it's I think it ends up being close to 200 births or 200 people you end up seeing by the time you're done because you have to do a certain number of prenatal visits and like a certain number of uh, supervised births and where you're the point person and ones where you're not the point person and continuation of care and postpartum care in addition to the book learning that I'm going to be doing for the next three years so September 12th, I have my first class online, and now it's all gone virtual because of COVID, but I have my first online class for midwifery. And so that'll go for six months, then it'll be another three months. And then it turns into like books and study and study groups and getting up under that midwife and getting my numbers for the next three to five years. That's gonna be my world.
0: So I'm not obviously ever been a midwife. I very clearly always have known I don't want to be a midwife. Um, and <laughs> when you were describing that, just the number of births alone, my, I had a strong body reaction. Like, I mean, just knowing that when I was in like my full throttle, full-time birth work, like I had a cafe at on average four births a month because more than that, I started to feel really depleted right? But I could do like on average one birth a week and I'm like, okay, I can still be human. But even that being said, everything else was on the back burner. I wasn't a student and I still wasn't making enough money to sustain myself in the Bay. Um, Mm -hmm. So therefore to imagine that on top of having to do other side, other gigs in order to make money, having to be immersed in your studies, also knowing that again like with with your scope of practice and with your who you choose to study with this isn't just a typical quote-unquote academic experience no this is a complete immersion like one could say that it seems like it could be almost impossible Hmm. and i say that because also knowing too first off i want to have an episode strictly on dating life of a soon midwife. <laughs>
1: <laughs> baby. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> oh my gosh. And then the, I got cheese to me, baby. I got cheese to me. Let's go.
0: <laughs> yes. Oh, and then and then yeah, like having um, continuing to bring in some historical pieces for folks because knowing that it is no accident that there are so many hoops to jump through to quote unquote be legitimate in the government's nope. eyes. As well as it's not an accident that there's so many hoops to jump through logistically in order to become a student, you know? There's a reason why the majority of midwives, if they are successful in, you know, getting licensed or finishing their completion of their studies, there's no accidents that they tend to be heterosexual couples, right? Where the male partner is able to, you know, to carry... Like, there's so many things that are set up to favor a certain degree of intersection and I think it's helpful for folks who are newer to these to these stories and to history it's important that folks are able to articulate it because when we're able to put words to it then we can better figure out how to apply our resources right so like if I got funds right I'm in Michigan if I was there I would sign up to like cook you a meal at least once a week You know, Mm. like it's like if I don't have money right now, you better believe I have beans (laughs) and like those beans would be honored to like feed your belly. You know, like there's so many um, resources are way more than just money. It's time. It's connections. It's like, you know, keeping, for example, like keeping you in mind, if ever. Right. I'm in a a room where there could be someone that has resources that could apply to you, you know, that, that could serve you like that's what this is about. And that's also part of, I feel like I'm getting preachy here, but whatever. Another part about (laughs) like, you know, decolonizing work is to understand this is all built on relationships, you know, and to get to know you better and what you need and what you desire will enable us to be better of service. But also I got so cut up there. I just like lost myself in that feeling. Also, the more this is relationship based, the, the less we'll get caught up of our own stories of scarcity, mm-hmm. which I also see and hear so often, especially in the Bay Area, because, you know, hustle is real. A lot of birth workers are struggling. And a lot of times, one of the bonding things that happen amongst birth workers, but also I want to say like amongst birth workers of color, is that we share our struggles as part of our connection to each other you know and then what happens is like sometimes un- unintentionally it's like the only shit we're sharing with each other it's how hard things are and like what we're mm-hmm. lacking and it's like mm-hmm. yes that's valid and that's legit and when we're coming at things from a heart place from a belly place then naturally right like if i'm if i'm like connecting with you and if i love you right if i'm like really meaningfully trying to support your work then it's not about these check boxes, you know? It's about like, what do I have? It's like, oh, you know what, like that, like plantita that grew up right in the corner of my yard, like that's an herbal ally. Like, hey Rafael, look, I got a plant, you know? Like all those things distributed amongst a wide range of people, that's community. And that's how we can Man. overcome these so,
1: systems. That's so perfect that you say that because that's happening to me right now and it's one of the ways that I was able to even make this shift right because when I left my partner I had 250 dollars in the bank that's it and I was living in Sacramento which is 100 miles east of the Bay Area and I had been depressed and I had also injured myself really badly so I hadn't really been able to work and I still wasn't really able to work and I told my community what was happening with me and over these last, you know, six to eight months, I've gotten everything I need. So the people who had money gave me money. The people who had herbal stuff, like I got, I have so much, I've actually had to share it. I've had to give some away. Cause they were like, oh, oh, you need some herbal thing? Okay, so here's some body scrubs, here's bombs, here's tinctures. My friend made me some Douglas fir infused brandy Ooh. you know um so i've gotten boxes of things like that and and different kinds of medicine and um people making sure i'm stocked up on weed and shit you know like all the things and when i didn't have a place to stay My homies gave me their beautiful homes. You know, like I wasn't staying somewhere raggedy and fucked up. I was staying in places with a beautiful, I'm just, you know what I'm saying? Like with beautiful backyards. They made sure that I was fed. They made sure I was loved up. They checked in on me. They ran baths for me. And this is all during COVID. You know what I'm saying? Like we are having to figure out how to do this, which means we're having whole conversations about being in each other's pods. My community risked their lives for me to make sure that I had a place to stay, that I had good food to eat. And not just like bullshit, right? Like that shit that is just like, oh, because beggars can't be choosers, fuck that. You know what I'm saying? Like I was in a rough situation and they said, you get to have the best bitch. You know, like, and when I say people sent me money, I'm talking about like $500, $2,000. When I say people made me meals, I'm talking like, you know, tiramisu French toast and shit, you know, like. And just loved me up, you know, and also even, and like you said, connecting me to resources, right? Where they were just like, Oh, have you heard about this resource and this resource was got me more money and connected to other people that brought me more resources so that I was able to get this place that I now have. And I I'm living on my own and refrigerators full of food. And I got, I know that my rent is going to be paid on the first, you know what I'm saying? Like, and I still got to go and get some more money for October and November, but my whole community has been looking out for me, not just in one way, because everyone's got different resources at different times. And it's even been like, I have a friend that's out in the Midwest herself, and she's just been sending me text messages, mostly, that are just hilarious and all point and encouraging me. So um, every little bit has count and making me even be able to make this decision to switch and try to become a midwife right and i'm gonna need that in order to get through this because i'm gonna be a midwife is a a community healer we are meant to dive into a community and bring whatever light and skill that we have to the people who are around us and the people who are connected to those people And in order to do that properly, I'm gonna need to be filled too. The community has to give back to me and make sure that my car ain't fucked up and that I got my rent paid and I live somewhere nice and that I can take vacations and I have health insurance and I'm getting body work, you know, all the things that I'm giving, I need to have it back. And that's also why I'm like focusing in on a particular way of gathering resources because that's gonna be my foundation for when I do start my own practice. Because right. I, I have stories of midwives who, you know, like closed community clinics and community centers because they were like, no one is helping to sustain me. And I'm going to these births. I'm leaving my children or like in my case, like one of the reasons why I don't have children is because I haven't had the time or the money to carve out the space to have a child of my own. And there's a lot of birth workers in that story. Or the ones who do where they're just like, I missed this number of birthdays or my kid didn't have shoes on their feet because this client didn't pay me or couldn't pay me on time or didn't feel like I was worth the amount that I needed to get paid. And so now I'm walking or I have to take an Uber to get to birth and shit like that. And the, the story of the midwife I told you about who got cancer and worked on the day she died you know, and not being able to retire and shit. And so I just was like, if I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this for a long time and I'm still going to have a life and I'm still going to be whole, I need a whole community to do that because four births a month is about what I'm going to need to do as a student midwife to really hit all those numbers. But to be honest, the sweet spot for me is two to three births a month
0: because there is,
1: it's so in depth because I'm not just talking about this family's physical well-being. I also... Even just in my years as a doula, I've had to deal with domestic violence. I've had to talk to CPS before. I've had to get people groceries. I've walked people through death. Like, mama died six months before baby was born, or daddy died two days before baby was born, or like niece died the day of the birth. You know, like I've got to make a huge amount of space to actually meet the health needs. Of The people who are coming to me and they're coming to me with all kinds of stuff. Right. And I get to pick and choose who my client is, but it doesn't matter. Like even if when I get the ones who are well resourced my prenatals with them last upwards of two hours so that we can get through everything. So I need to make sure that, you know, my community, including my clients who are my community pay me what I deserve to be paid and gift me the things that I need to be gifted and honor the amount of time and space that I need to put myself back together so that I can be whole for them when they need me. Because the thing also about being a midwife is it's a similar role to a parent. Like my clients don't care if I'm sick. Not really. Or even the clients that I've had recently, like they don't give a damn that I'm going through a divorce. I'm like they like, I'm having a baby during a pandemic. <laughs> Pay attention to me. and that's part of my job and so if I'm gonna do that just the way that I encourage parents like don't forget that you're still a whole person when you have a child this whole idea that you have to give yourself up and over to your child and that you you're not supposed to think of anything but them is bull and it's the same thing with the midwife like I'm gonna be thinking about more than just you when I leave you you have my undivided attention at that time and then I go home and I take care of me so that I can be who I need to be to all the people in my life and to myself and then show up for you. So that's what I'm building. That's what I'm working on right now. The vision
0: is so important to hear because for all you listeners out there who've never heard this before, like what was just paved for us is a sustainable foundation to a birth work practice right but let alone just a a midwifery practice and I'm down and I (laughs) cannot wait I just realized the time so we have have one more question for you friends if that's cool Um, and then we'll come back again one month from now to see upon your life so knowing that you've yet to begin your first class Uh right do you have any words that you would like to say to your future self at this point before you officially step through the thresholds do you have any words that you would like to say to your future self the one who finishes this midwifery program
1: don't forget about me because i'm the one that did the work and chose to do this so don't forget about that beginner part like it's it's real easy when you get to the end to just be like woo. I made it, I did it. I'm so glad I'm not the person that I used to be, but this person that I am right now is who got us here. And without me, you aren't where you are. And also like work bitch, like you continue to shock me. You continue to floor me. I think you are amazing even on your worst fucking day. And thank you, because this is some bullshit. And I know that you've seen ups and downs and you did it and you stuck with it and you persevered and you did it the way that you felt it needed to be done and i love you love you so deep you are my best friend you're my partner in crime and i'll never ghost on you
0: Thanks for listening to the Birth Bruja podcast. I've been your host, Eric Guajardo-Johnson. Be sure to check out show notes for a list of resources mentioned during today's episode. Are you interested in learning more about these intersections? Visit birthbruja.com, an online educational and community platform. Last but not least, dear friends, help us expand the impact of this work. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite listening platform. Until next time, thank you for all the ways you show up in this world. Blessings and gratitude.